regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Welcome to the 15th episode of Datacast. Today, I'm on the live with Nick Gaylord. He has worked as a data scientist in the Bay Area for about the last five years. Currently, he is a member of the Johnson & Johnson Health Technology team. And prior to that, he has worked in the different fields ranging from small business revenue analytics to enterprise machine learning as a service platforms, like many data scientists. He started out as an academic before transitioning into the industry. In his case, earning a PhD in psycholinguistics from the University of Texas at Austin back in 2013. So, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So, uh, I want to start out our interview discussing your educational background. So, you have a PhD degree in uh, psycholinguistics from UT Austin. So, for the audience who are not familiar with this discipline, what is psycholinguistics and why did you choose to study it? Yeah, so as its name suggests, psycholinguistics is basically at the intersection of cognitive psychology research and linguistics research. So most work in the field has to do with uh, conducting psychological experiments to understand more about the way that human language works. I got into it because my path through grad school was a very meandering one. Um, I never really had a strong single focus for what I wanted to research. When I joined, I wanted to work on kind of something that was completely different from what my dissertation ended up being about. But what happened over time was that, you know, I did start to get interested in questions of semantics and questions of meaning. Uh, You know, how do we actually understand what words mean and how do we actually, you know, share information using language? There's a lot of ways that those questions can even be explored, but the ones that became increasingly interesting to me were the ones that had something to do with the cognitive side of things. You know, how do we actually use language to tap into the knowledge that we have and share that knowledge with other people? And so I developed this interest in cognitive science, and then eventually my various research focus areas uh, you know, sort of converged uh, with my psycholinguistics work, which was over the past, you know, the, the final about three years of my degree. I see. And as you mentioned, for your for your PhD dissertation, you was looking at the role of uh, domain general decision making processes in human language comprehension. So, mm-hmm. uh, could you mind discussing your PhD thesis in uh, more detail? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to try and keep this pretty general because I think most of our audience here is not going to be linguists or psychologists. In essence, what I focused on was the uh, question of ambiguity 
in language. Uh, which is to say that a lot of words can mean more than one thing, depending on how they're used. There are financial banks and river banks. There are things that break like vases break, and then there are things that break like the dawn breaks or news breaks. And when we stop and think about it, most words that we use to one degree or another have a certain flexibility in meaning they, they, you know, that they can mean more than one thing depending on how they're used. That sort of fascinated me. In particular, how is it that we go about correctly understanding what the intended meaning is when we hear somebody use an ambiguous word or when we read an ambiguous word in text? It's a really fundamental comprehension problem that we need to understand if we're going to understand how people effectively use language and understand each other. It's a topic that's been researched a lot, uh, and there are psychologists that have researched it. There are people who are more focused on linguistic theory who have researched it. But what I did was essentially approach that topic from a very general point of view. There's a lot of research in psychology on how people make decisions. And it's been used very heavily in a lot of fields, for example, economics. But it hasn't made its way into the study of language comprehension in the same way. But when you stop and think about it, figuring out what the correct interpretation of an ambiguous word is, it sort of sounds a lot like a decision problem. You have a few choices, and you consider available evidence, and you make that place, and you're either correct or you're incorrect. So I took some of the standard types of experimental designs that are used more generally in human decision-making research, and applied those design principles to studies on how people interpret ambiguous words to see if we can account for some of this language comprehension behavior in the same way that we account for how people make decisions more generally. And it seems like there, it seems like, it seems like that's probably true. Uh, you know, this is a example of how sometimes it's hard to convey to somebody who's outside of a field exactly why your research topic was actually interesting. Because from an outside perspective, especially when the work is summarized, you know, essentially I spent four years demonstrating that people pay more attention to something when it's bad for them to be wrong about it, which is not a surprising finding or something that anybody would have expected otherwise. Yet, in the context of the state of the field of linguistics while I was there, it was actually a very novel type of uh, research project and a novel conclusion. I think what's interesting about that more generally is just because we're speaking here today as part of a podcast aimed, at least in part, at aspiring data scientists. And a lot of people who are making their way into the data science field are people who are either graduate students or relatively junior academics. And I think that one of the challenges that one often faces when migrating out of academia is how do you convince people that the work you've been doing is interesting because they're not going to have the same basis for understanding your accomplishments compared to if you were actually talking about your achievements in a recent industry role. And so when people ask me to talk about my dissertation, sometimes I'm still not exactly sure how to approach that question because I want to make it sound interesting and cool. But sometimes we get so focused on our very specific research topics that it's hard to make them sound interesting and cool without having to explain way too much very specific and nuanced research context for how we wound up studying what we did. I think it's worthwhile for people who are considering this transition in their careers 
to really think carefully about how they can reframe their academic experience and expertise in a way that will resonate with audiences that don't necessarily share their academic background. Definitely, and we're gonna talk about that reframing later on in the in our discussion. But uh, before that, uh, so in addition to doing research, you also accumulated very uh, substantial teaching experience in grad school. So what are some of the classes that you've helped teach? I was lucky in a way that the graduate program that I went to, I did not have guaranteed funding, uh, and I certainly did not have guaranteed funding coming from a research grant. So the majority of my stipend and support that I got as I was going through grad school uh, came from various assistantships. I spent a lot of time working just as a TA and then also had the opportunity to teach several classes myself actually as the uh, university instructor of record. Um, so I taught uh, introduction to linguistics class uh, three times. I also taught an upper division class called language and thought that was not just based on my dissertation research, of course, but very a, good, a very good fit given my dissertation research. Beyond that, I even spent some time as a TA in the philosophy department. I TA'd some introduction to philosophy classes and an existentialism class once or twice. Really a pretty broad variety of different courses uh, that I got to be involved in. And I really enjoyed that because the teaching aspect of academia was always what I enjoyed the most and it's still what I miss the most. In my career today, I still try and find opportunities to have uh, you know, the role of a teacher or a mentor uh, whenever possible. It's also one of the reasons I enjoy doing things like having con the conversation we're having now. Right. Uh, because the feeling that I can get from, you know, sharing a little bit of my knowledge, you know, it's a good feeling. What was special about E.T. Austin? I think everybody has places that they just feel very at home. And Austin was one of those places for me. It is probably the place I have, uh, the, the place I have felt the most at home of anywhere I've ever lived. To be able to spend my 20s in a place that I've just felt so connected to at home mm -hmm. was a really wonderful opportunity uh, and something that meant a lot much you know going much beyond even my graduate experience but beyond that i think one of the things that made ut special was that for reasons outside the scope of this podcast interview the field of linguistics has largely been very insular and has not been as connected to a lot of other research disciplines um, as maybe it should. UT Austin was one of the places where that isolation was really much less true. And the linguistics faculty at UT had real meaningful research connections uh, and associations with a lot of other departments across campus, ranging from philosophy to language departments to computer science and education and psychology. And there was a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary research and exploring perspectives on language research that would have been difficult or maybe impossible at a lot of other institutions. I myself wound up writing a dissertation on a very interdisciplinary topic, as did many of my colleagues. And I think as we have seen the field of linguistics evolve over the past 10 years, the things that were happening at UT really were ahead of what has become a major trend of linguistics discovering possible connections with other areas of research 
you know, or rediscovering those connections for the first time in perhaps a generation. So your first job out of grad school is as a linguistic associate at Lexicon Branding, um, a premier naming agency with more than 30 years of experience in the business. So what are some of the most interesting creative projects for, for different clients that you work on during your time at Lexicon Branding? Great question. So my time at Lexicon was really interesting. I actually, my first industry job after I left uh, academia, I managed to get a job that was actually very closely related to my dissertation topic. Uh, you know, we mentioned this question previously of how do you reframe your expertise. That really mattered a lot for me getting this job because, uh, you know, people who have spent the past 30 years working on highly strategic marketing projects don't necessarily have a lot of sense of the current state of the art of academic research in linguistics and psychology. The specific focus of my dissertation, again, like I said, on understanding meanings of words, and in particular, I was focused on the sort of first stages of that process where people retrieve information about semantic meaning from their memory. I was able to redescribe my expertise as more generally about the first impressions that people experience when they see a word. Creating the right first impression with a word is really what branding is all about. And so I was able to actually make quite a good case that my very specific and complicated research topic somehow qualified me to start coming up with names for products, services, and companies to be put out into the market. And I got to work on a lot of fun things. You know, some of them ended up actually seeing uh, the light of day and some of them didn't. But uh, a couple of the projects that I did work on that uh, are more well-known um, were I helped to name uh, Tidal Music which has since been bought by Jay-Z. And I also played a minor role in the naming of Impossible Foods, who make uh, the Impossible Burger, a, a wildly popular new uh, vegetarian uh, meat product. And uh, those are a couple of the ones that, you know, I'm, you know, that I see mentioned frequently as I walk down the street even still. After two years there, you, uh, you move on to your next job as a data scientist, this time at Edibon, an mm -hmm. AI startup. Back then, was playing in Silicon Valley, help companies understand their language data. So can you discuss your work there, uh, especially revolving the natural language processing domain? I'm going to talk first just briefly about my, my transition that I undertook, because I think one of the things that's important to note here is that I never really planned to be a data scientist. Right. I don't even have a particularly technical background. I mean, my time as a linguistics grad student, um, you know, NLP, like you mentioned, is one of the major areas of work in linguistics and, ling you know, and linguistics departments today. And I spent some time studying computational linguistics. That's how I started to learn how to code. And then when I started doing psychology work, I learned a fair amount of statistics so that I could um, analyze my uh, experimental results and things. So I had a degree of technical background, but it was all a bit indirect. It was all stuff I had learned at various points in time, just as a means to an end, because I was really interested in other research topics. I was a bit surprised to discover that those more technical aspects of my knowledge were, after I left academia, the things that I missed using the most. And while my time at Lexicon did let me do some quantitative work in terms of survey analysis, 
and do a little bit of coding work in terms of building a couple small internal tools that some of the creatives used. Uh, I really decided that uh, even though I had this job that actually related to my dissertation in a way, that what I actually wanted to do was just crunch more numbers and do work that was more deeply quantitative. And so that was the realization that made me decide I wanted to go over and work in data science instead. Landing at Idibon was a good fit because I was able to use some of my previous experience in NLP to get my foot in the door. Um, it was a more, you know, it was a, perhaps a clearer fit than had I immediately tried to go and work someplace like I work now, where there's no connection to my uh, graduate school research at all. A lot of the work that I did at Idibon was partially language-oriented, but also partially just working with data sets that were generated as uh, output of machine learning systems and helping our customers to understand better uh, what types of things the system was processing accurately, what types of things the system was missing, and offering, their gu offering them guidance about how they might be able to improve the quality of their models and improve the quality of, uh, you know, get more value essentially out of what we were offering. Um, Idibon in particular was focused on really two main application areas, and one of them was document classification. One of them was information extraction, so things like named entity recognition and things like that. Uh, and uh, our clients kind of used those to various degrees. It was pretty much the same underlying technology that we served up to all of them, but what we allowed was for clients to uh, you know, upload very large amounts of data for both training and classification. And then we uh, actually you know, sort of built the machine learning architecture as well. Uh, such that our APIs could deliver extremely fast classification responses over basically arbitrarily large volumes of input data. And uh, while I wasn't an engineer who worked on helping to build that, I learned a lot from working alongside of those people. I see. So uh, after one year stint at Edibon, you um, blend a new role as a senior data scientist at Crowdflower, uh, now also known as FigureEd, a human in the loop machine learning and AI company in San Francisco. So, uh, as I seen in your LinkedIn profile, you know, you have launched the Crowdflower AI, which is a machine learning product that uh, integrates with the company's data enrichment platform to provide an end-to-end -end solution for constructing and deploying custom machine learning solution. So, would you mind briefly going over some of that effort um, building this product? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, it's not quite accurate to say that I landed a job at Crowdflower. Uh, the reality was that after about a year and a half at Idibon, the company shut down because uh, we weren't able to raise a second round of funding and an effort to get acquired fell through at the last possible moment. And so the company actually shut down on three days' notice. I was, however, able to get a job at Crowdflower partially because of some long-standing professional connections between the people who were running Idibon and the people who were running Crowdflower. Uh, uh, Idibon was actually a Crowdflower customer when they were in operation. Some of those connections went way back. Uh, so that certainly helped me find a good place to land after I uh, after I moved on from Idibon. And it was also a really interesting experience because that Crowdflower AI project product that you mentioned in some ways was really very similar to what Idibon was working on at the time. Uh, you know, both of them were essentially active learning powered uh, machine learning as a service platforms. Um, Idibon's was more strict, 
be focused on NLP, but the Crowdflower offering, at least in its early stages, was also largely text-oriented just because of, you know, you need to make certain prioritizations in terms of what uh, pieces of your stack you're going to build out first and what types of machine learning support you want to build. Uh, so we actually spent about a year building that, uh, backed by $10 million of investment from Microsoft, and learned some really interesting things. It was a great chance for me, having just watched one company fail, trying to bring one of these products to market, and have the chance to try again and take those lessons learned and say, all right, let's try it again and let's get it right this time. But interestingly, the Crowdflower AI product also did not really take off. Uh, Crowdflower was a wonderful company, and uh, Figure 8 was actually just purchased for $300 million. So clearly they were doing a lot of things right. But the platform that we worked on never really quite saw the level of adoption we hoped for. And I think that that, in and of itself, provided some interesting lessons in terms of, for one, the readiness of a lot of established enterprise to adopt general purpose machine learning tools, and possibly also the usefulness of trying to build truly general purpose tools uh, that at least putatively do not require the input of any actual data science experts on the customer side was something that was marketed very effectively back in the mid-20-teens, but I don't know if it ever actually really took off in the way that people hoped. And that was sort of around the time of this boom of, you know, X-as-a-service type offerings. Well, why not machine learning, too? Well, possibly because to really get a machine learning product right, you know, to use machine learning in production properly, you just need to have enough in-depth understanding of your data and your model and how your model fits in with the rest of your production workflow. Outsourcing the infrastructure required for it, um, you know, sort of starts to make less and less sense. You know, Crowdflower and subsequently Figure 8's greatest value actually always lie you know, always lay in their ability to help companies obtain large amounts of high-quality human-labeled training data so that they could actually build those models. But the most successful customers, you know, usually ended up building them internally. After that one year working at Crowdflower, you move on to another senior data scientist role for about six months working on engagement lead at Change Healthcare, which is a healthcare technology company that offers software, analytics, network solution, and tech-based uh, services to help create a more collaborative healthcare system. So why did you choose to work in, in healthcare? And uh, what were some of the major responsibilities that you have during your time there? Great question also. The short answer is I never really chose to work in healthcare. That was beside the point. Now, what is true is that I like to, well, I shouldn't just say I like to, I consider it very important to only take roles and do work that has at least some chance of creating a positive impact in the world. It's a pretty common trend for technology companies here in the Bay to try and talk about how the work that they do is making the world a better place. 
and uh, you know, pretty much the very first scene of the very first episode of Silicon Valley has a, has a has a great you know sort of uh, bit of comedy around that. I worked for Crowdflower, um, you know, well, partially because I had the opportunity to, but also partially because I really felt that a lot of the uh, crowdsourcing work that they were supporting was having a positive impact in terms of distributing economic opportunity to underserved areas of the globe. And I really enjoyed my time there, and I certainly could have stuck around after we decided to stop working on the Crowdflower AI project. But I also was at a point where I thought, you know, I ought to consider what other options might be interesting. So a recruiter reached out to me around that time and talked to me about this opportunity at Change Healthcare. And, uh, you know, on the surface, it sounded uh, very much like the type of role that I want. Hey, you know, let's work to help make the American healthcare system function more efficiently. And so I got to be the third member, I think, or maybe fourth member of a machine learning oriented data science team there uh, that grew to over 20 people by the time that I left. And uh, 20 is pretty big, but it's especially big when we consider the fact that I was only there for six months. Mm -hmm. uh, shortly after I left, you know, or shortly after I joined, rather, the approach that the team took towards uh, project management uh, it got changed fairly significantly. And so the role that I was hired for wasn't really needed as directly anymore. Uh, so I stayed around for uh, several months after that to help uh, guide the initial, uh, you know, sort of uh, the, the initial hiring up and establishment of the team and offer guidance where I could. But ultimately, it became really much more a machine learning engineering team mm -hmm. and uh, less a team focused on the types of data science problem solving that I prefer. And so uh, it didn't take long before I realized that I would be better suited in a role that was a little bit more cross-functional, where I could make technical contributions, but also really in a way that helped guide business-level decision-making and not just building machine learning products. And so... You know, that's why then I went to Wompley uh, after that, uh, which is uh, a you know, pretty interesting company that is a provider of insights-oriented software-as-a-service products for small business owners. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big supporter of the small business community, and again, I really was very excited about the opportunity to spend some time building products that could help small business owners remain competitive as it gets harder and harder to uh, remain uh, in business, especially independently. And so, yeah, then I spent uh, then I spent about a year there working with some pretty interesting data sets as well, um, both social media reputation-oriented stuff, um, as well as a lot of interesting uh, financial and transactional data so that they could help, un help understand their revenues more effectively. One of the things that they provide is an opportunity for business owners to manage their online reputation more easily, which basically uh, boils down to they offer a, a SaaS platform uh, with integrations with uh, a lot of the major review sites, um, you know, Yelp and Google reviews and TripAdvisor and things like that, uh, that will alert business owners when they've received reviews, make it easier for them to reply to reviews and you know manage their response to negative reviews if they receive them 
so that they can grow and maintain and protect their reputation online. Uh, the other part of what Wampley focused on was the revenue analytics side. Um, so uh, Wampley had partnerships in place with a very large number of credit card processing companies. These are not companies like Chase or MasterCard, but rather companies that kind of sit as intermediaries in the transaction. Most of them you haven't heard of, but they are the ones that the, that the credit card terminal talks to when it processes your transaction. And so we were able to ingest uh, millions and millions of businesses worth of transaction data every day. And in doing so, we were able to observe a very large portion of uh, American retail activity in near real time. Uh, that helped power products that would allow small business owners to understand how their revenue trends compared to other regional and industry level trends, uh, as well as just in general helping them understand, you know, kind of how they sit relative to the competition. It also gave us the opportunity to mine that data and tell some very interesting stories as part of PR campaigns about the overall dynamics of the small business retail sector. And so I did a lot of collaboration there as well with our marketing department, uh, helping to prepare content that made its way into uh, blog posts, newspaper interviews, press releases, and other things like that. So about eight months ago, you have transitioned into a new role now as a senior man manager in the data science department at Johnson & Johnson Health Technology Group, uh, reporting directly to the global head of health tech products. So uh, from my knowledge, um, Johnson & Johnson is the world's largest and most broadly based healthcare company. Um, so what are the major challenges in incorporating AI and um, machine learning developments to support product innovation at Johnson & Johnson, um, especially in a very heavily regulated industry Okay. Uh, yeah, very interesting question, and you know, one of the things that I'm going to latch on to right uh, right out the right off the bat there is the assumption that this is a team that is focused on AI and machine learning applications. Um, that's largely not true. We are largely working on other aspects of digital health innovation and research, and. I think it's interesting uh, as an opportunity to pause and consider the extent to which these days when people talk about data science, the assumption is so often that data science is really just equated with machine learning, um, something that I consider to be false. And uh, in reality, a lot of the work that I do here has absolutely no connection to machine learning whatsoever, but is actually more about providing quantitative guidance to help guide decision-making and innovation efforts um, in a technological development space, um, but not necessarily, not necessarily building M AI and ML products at all. Uh, that said, you did ask about the challenges of adopting machine learning and AI in heavily regulated uh, spaces such as healthcare, and uh, there definitely are a lot of challenges there, possibly the biggest one being um, accountability and the need to have proper audit trails for the way that systems make decisions. Um, this is increasingly an issue as more and more uh, excitement builds around models and uh, approaches that use things like deep learning 
uh, which sacrifice a lot of model interpretability for the sake of higher performance. Uh, and I think those are very exciting and interesting areas of research. But if you need to actually offer an, an explanation for why a patient was diagnosed with something or why a treatment recommendation was produced, then uh, not being able to actually inspect the internal state of the model to understand what pieces of information it considered and weighted in what ways uh, is something that a lot of people are very hesitant to accept. So with respect to uh, machine learning in a regulated space, that's one of the big ones. Uh, but the bigger challenges often are simply coming from organizational size, and uh, especially with older companies like J&J, &J, um, Change Healthcare kind of similarly as a former McKesson subsidiary had been around for a long time. You know, doing new stuff, especially new stuff that has radical implications for process change and that uses new resources or uses resources in new ways, uh, within a big company, it typically requires a lot of approvals and it requires a lot of time to get those approvals. And one of the things that makes tech startups so provocative is their ability to be very nimble and respond quickly and innovate and iterate very, very fast. Uh, that can be a challenge when you are working inside of a larger organization that is just not used to moving at that pace. And so getting around those limitations or building uh, support for infrastructure and processes to get around those limitations, you know, that can also be a challenge in some large companies. Absolutely. So up until this point, we have only kind of uh, talked about your, your work experience, you know, from in different uh, size of companies, from, from big company to, to, um, to small startup. And obviously, you have a lot of uh, wisdom in which you share uh, in, on your website that I got a chance to read. Um, so I want to move on in, in the next part of our conversation to talk a bit about your, your writings. In a blog post called Drinks with a Businessman, you mentioned that your personal narrative has become uh, one of a, being a person who can facilitate communication between technical and non-technical teams. So can you explain that narrative in um, more detail? I love that one, actually. That's one of my favorite blog posts I've ever written. So thank you for bringing it up. Uh, you know, partially just because it was this, you know, sort of accidental evening that was never really supposed to happen, but uh, only well after the fact did I realize that there was some value in understanding what didn't, what did and didn't work. Um, I'm not going to summarize the entire story that is contained in the blog post, but the short version is: uh, at one point when I was in college or in uh, grad school, rather. I wound up uh, talking with this random business guy at some happy hour situation, and over the course of a few drinks, he kind of you know started to badger me more and more about you know whether I actually understood what I could do as a career with a PhD in linguistics. Basically, backed me into a corner where I had to admit that I didn't have a plan. Um, and uh, the way that I tried to convince him that I did have a plan was never really a very good strategy in the first place thinking about that conversation after the fact kind of led me to realize uh, much after the fact how I could have approached that situation differently and what questions I could have actually asked him to understand more about his perspective and his needs and maybe we would have found better alignment that way. Um, but specifically to get, to get back what you were focusing on there, facilitating alignment between technical and non-technical teams. I'm going to tell you a story here it's not about me. I'm going to tell you a story about my grandfather. In the 1960s, my grandfather worked for a company that manufactured pipe and valve fittings. 
And it was actually kind of a very exciting time to be there because they were one of the uh, first large-scale assembly lines to really undertake a total conversion from being all manual production to all computerized production. And my grandfather's role was not in actually building the computerized assembly line, uh, but it was actually as this sort of intermediary. Um, back then, people who had the engineering and you know technical expertise to build fully computerized systems were like super nerds, right? And people who were in the head office managing the company were total classic, like old school businessmen, like probably I think of them as like madmen types or something like that. And you can imagine putting those two groups of people and having them somehow have an effective dialogue about how to completely overhaul the company's production system. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not going to work, right? Those people can't talk to each other. And so my grandfather's role was basically as the go-between uh, in those efforts because he was a person who had the level of technical understanding that he could communicate effectively with the engineers. And he was also the person who had the level of business understanding so that he could com communicate effectively with the business owners. And so he was able to make sure that both sides knew what was going on and what was going to happen next. Uh, so the, the business need for this type of role is not new. It's just becoming so much more widespread as the intrusion of technology and especially, you know, sort of uh, large scale, you know, in production technology, technological systems, uh, you know, broadens in the, you know, within industry. And so now we're at a point where most business leaders are much more technically savvy than they were 50 years ago. And we're also at a point where most engineers and, uh, you know, scientifically minded people are more conversant and uh, comfortable working inside of, you know, uh, you know uh, companies uh, than perhaps they were in the past. Uh, but nonetheless, there's still a expertise gap between uh, executives and management and the engineering people who are actually building and maintaining the, you know, uh, cloud architectures and production ML systems and other types of core technologies that power the products of today. And so a lot of what I have been able to contribute, whether it was working with external clients of companies or whether it's even just within a single company like where I am now, um, is the opportunity to make sure that that information flows effectively in both directions. Thanks for you know sharing that um, that story and uh, you know kind of emphasize more on on, on that specific skill set, which I think um, a lot of people you know aspire to have. In another post, go a few thoughts on machine learning from the perspective of a behavioral scientist. You argue that good data science is about being able to generate and test hypotheses think critically about unfamiliar data and be able to gouge how much you trust your results. So how can data scientists best develop these core skills? Well, when we think about these core skills of understanding the limitations of your data and understanding what you can really do with the data and understanding, you know, sort of the performance of your model and what it's getting right and what it's getting wrong, Probably the best way to build this, probably the best way to build those skills, honestly, is just 
a long history of repeated failure. I think that science in general, you know, what we're talking about here is really we're just talking about how do you do science. Science in general is often, you know, I like to think about science as sort of uh, the, the art of systematically being wrong. You don't really learn how to approach analytical tasks with a properly framed degree of skepticism until you've been wrong enough times or failed to set up your assumptions properly enough times. And so that's one of the things that I think makes grad school a good you know, sort of uh, preparation experience for data science uh, is because it's basically a safe place to fail repeatedly. And uh, I think most people who have gone through grad school to their PhDs will agree that the research that they did in their first couple of years was pretty much all terrible. And the way that they even approached their dissertation proposal versus the way their dissertation turned out uh, was, you know, sort of almost a comical, um, you know, imaginary vision of what they were going to achieve. Um, so you just have to learn through repeated exposure to, you know, attempts to do good quality science, you know, what does and doesn't work. Uh, eventually, you kind of wind up in a place where you have reasonably good intuitions about how to approach more complex tasks. You also wrote a three-part series blog post titled uh, Being a Graduate Student is a Lot Like Being a Startup. Can you go over some of these key similarities from your observation writing this? I really enjoyed writing those three. And so, you know, for people that are curious or who find that a tantalizing comparison, you know, I would self-servingly suggest that they take a look themselves and, you know, read through. Because I still feel like it was one of the more, you know, one of the more insightful comparisons that I have managed to make, perhaps. Uh, but one of them really kind of stands out to me, which is the story of how I struggled to achieve consistent funding as a graduate student. I mentioned before that I started my grad program without any guaranteed funding sources. And so Uh, that meant that funding was competitive and you had to keep reapplying for it every year. And, you know, you hoped you got a TA ship so that you could afford to stay in grad school. And uh, I had a little bit of savings when I started that kind of helped smooth things out because it took a couple of years before I started uh, getting actual, you know, getting funding from my department with any degree of regularity. And I was disappointed by that, you know, and I didn't understand why it was, how, why it was hard for me to actually get funded as a grad student because to be honest i was doing some pretty good stuff you know i uh wrote a seminar paper in my first semester as a grad student that i sent off and uh, got accepted to this uh small conference uh you know it was just a workshop but it was still you know a, it was a very prestigious workshop in the field and it was hosted at the university of cambridge And I thought, wow, that's a pretty that's a pretty good achievement for a first semester grad student. You know, surely that should get me funding, and it didn't. And uh, you know, then a handful of other similar experiences with, you know, uh, publications and presentations and things like that. And, you know, not you know, but didn't necessarily translate into actually getting that reward. Uh, but see, that was where I was wrong. Was I was thinking about this funding as a reward, 
as something where, oh, you did a good job last year, so here's some more money to continue. Um, that's not how funding is. That's not how it works. It's not a reward. It's an investment. And so I was having this conversation many years after the fact with a friend of mine who's both a professor and an advisor to some startups. And we were thinking about the ways that tech startups get funded. And tech startups don't get funded just because they have a good idea. And they don't get funded just because they have done some good stuff in the past. Tech startups get invested in because the people who have the money believe that they are going to grow and that they are going to do more in the future than they have done in the past. And that's not just having a track record of previous success. It's also about having a plan and also being able to portray a picture that all of the work that you've been doing is building on itself and growing in a meaningful direction. That's what I lacked as an early grad student when I was applying for this funding. I was able to say, hey, here are some great things that I did in the last year, but I never was able to connect them very well as to why they mattered or what they were going to support, you know, set me up to do even better the next year. And so it wasn't that my department was unwilling to reward me. It was that my department wasn't ready to invest in me yet. And so uh, that's one of, I think, quite a few parallels that can be drawn. You know, after all, grad students and tech startups are both basically you know, a story about, you know, a person or group of people who are smart and very hardworking and have some pretty good ideas trying to bring those ideas to fruition, uh, even though success is, you know, the odds are against you. Yeah, and um, I definitely going to link those, uh, those repositories post in, in the show notes so people can get a chance to... Uh, read through all of the points that you made with a more careful eyes. So in another fiscal data science, the way I see it, you said that rather than uh, about the tools, data science is more about methodology, knowing how to formulate quantitative problems in meaningful ways, knowing how to evaluate possible answers to them, while of course also having the technical skills to accurately implement this process. So what books and resources could you recommend to learn the methodological science of data science? Oh, boy. Let's see. You know, I don't really... I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really think that these are things that you're going to get from books. I mean, I could list, I could list sort of, you know, classic textbooks, right? I mean, you know... You know, everybody should probably at least be somewhat familiar with, like, you know, Bishop's Pattern Recognition and Machine Learning. You know, everybody should probably be familiar with the, you know, sort of core cookbooks in whatever languages they they choose to pursue. You know, there's a lot of literature out there that is related to effective utilization of technological resources. And some of that probably helps. The fact of the matter is, is that it's not really a procedural task, in my mind, to do data science well. There are not recipes that you can really follow, and there I do not think are I do not think there are actual textbooks out there that you could read and study and then emerge on the other side a data scientist. Um, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be a gatekeeper here. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to make some sort of statement about how this knowledge is arcane or unattainable, um, just that it's an abstraction over experiences more than anything. 
uh, you know, this is, I think, a similar answer to what you had asked me previously. Well, you know, where my where I said that you know the best way to learn how to you know sort of do data science effectively is uh, just to fail repeatedly. Uh, now, I don't recommend failing repeatedly at your job. That's not usually a very good strategy for people mm-hmm. to pursue. But either way, you know, what you do need is you need to have just the cumulative experience of trying things and having those things not work so that you know what to watch out for again in the future. And uh, going back to one of the points that we mentioned, kind of like talk a lot about throughout our conversation, is like, you know, for a grad student to reframe the experience, you uh, you wrote, you know, a bunch of different uh, articles uh, with regard to address this this um, this topic. Uh, and two stand out for me. So in a postcode defining success, you talk about uh, the difference in success metrics for data science work in academia and in the industry. And in, in another postcode rethinking expertise, you made the point that um, successfully navigating from academia into industry requires a willingness to explore how your current specific skills can help tell a story about your qualification for a new role. So could you mind, I guess, I guess, clarifying some of these boys? Yeah, totally. So when I'm talking about ways that graduate student experience can make you sort of inherently well-qualified for industry roles, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. You know, when I talk about that, it is half me being deeply sincere. And it's half rehearsed platitudes. And by that, I mean that, you know, it really genuinely is the case that some of the qualities that define grad students, right, Um, being hardworking, being good at teaching themselves new things, being able to work for extended periods of time on complex tasks without a lot of supervision, uh, being able to document their work effectively, and being able to communicate what they've learned effectively. Uh, you know, things like that are basically table stakes for even being in grad school. Taken collectively, those things are pretty rare qualities out there in the workforce. And so it really is true that there are a lot of things that you either have or develop as a grad student that can really set you apart from a lot of other people out there in the world. But at the same time, you can't just put those as bullet points on a resume. Um, that's a resume nobody will ever read. If anybody, you know, and I mean, you know, if even when I look at somebody's LinkedIn profile, You know, if they talk about these things explicitly, if they if if their if their LinkedIn bio is just something like, "I am an incredibly dedicated, passionate, hard-working person who loves tackling new challenges," it's like ah, it's buzzwords, man. I don't believe any of it, right? That just sounds like some sort of canned, uh, you know, language that somebody threw on a page because it sounds good, right? You got to show it, and in order to show it, you still have to solve the problem of you know convincing potential employers and potential colleagues to be interested in you and your potential contributions. And so, you know, that's not just a matter of making a case for yourself. It's also a matter of being the type of person that can understand how to engage in dialogue with other people about their needs. 
and uh, you know from that conversation can then emerge the opportunity to build a deeper relationship and possibly you know even create an opportunity for yourself but they're not necessarily the types of skills and qualifications that can just be put directly on a resume like some degree of familiarity with a given program finally so in staying active in academia you talk about different ways to uh, remain um, academically productive while working an industry job. Um, how are you staying active in academia at the moment? I'm going to be honest with you. It's been six and a half years since I was in grad school. And so I'm not as active in academia as I was. That's okay. That said, One of the ways that I stay active in academia is by having conversations like this. You know, uh, once or twice a year, I'll either, you know, back at UT where I went or at another department where uh, a colleague of mine is a professor, uh, go and, you know, have some talks and workshops uh, about what it's like to transition into industry. And, you know, so uh, my role is increasingly one of uh, helping to provide that perspective to people that are you know, about to make the transition. Um, I have in the past, though, still undertaken some interesting research collaborations with colleagues of mine who are still active uh, and have labs and things like that. Um, I don't have anything going on right at the moment, but some of it, uh, in particular, some research that we've been doing looking at the applicability of cognitive science for improving some public health outcomes, um, you know, that might resurface again in the future, and I'd love to be a part of it if I could. Uh, but yeah, um, the number one way that I remain active in academia, honestly, is just realizing that after six years and change, I still have a lot of friends who are academics. And that when I left for industry, it didn't end those friendships. It didn't change anything about the way that we know each other or the way that they intellectually respect me. And we still have the same kinds of conversations about the same kinds of lofty and theoretical ideas that we always did. And so even though I'm not in academia myself, You know, I'm still an intellectual peer of many people who are, and uh, it's reassuring to me to remember that. So at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the closing segment in which I'm going to ask you just like very quick three three questions, um, and you can just, you know, give some uh, concrete answers in so the audience can, can get some tactical advice from them, okay? First one is that sure. uh, what are some of the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? I actually, uh, re you know, when you sent me these prompts to, for these questions a little bit ago, I actually reached out to a couple of friends to get their take on this as well, because I was realizing that I was having a little bit of trouble coming up with what I felt was a complete answer. Uh, but, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, for me, two of the ones that I will basically always mention are Stitch Fix and Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for two reasons, uh, for, two, for, for separate reasons, really. Uh, you know, I mean, Stitch Fix was able to uh, achieve a level of success that is almost completely unheard of. They built a billion-dollar revenue company out of a single Series A funding round. Um, it wasn't even that big of a Series A, as I recall, uh, because they were able to actually really understand how to build recommendation systems into a retail purchase experience in a way that had never been attempted or at least successfully implemented before. And because they really had a very keen understanding of how to incorporate a hybridization of machine learning and human decision-making 
into a single seamless workflow. They have some extremely impressive talent uh, on their team. Netflix, I think, is a great example, in particular uh, when it comes to the making available of data uh, for people to analyze and play with. Netflix has a data platform internal to their company uh, where large amounts of very interesting data are democratized uh, and accessible quite readily by people throughout the company. And that has provided opportunities for insights that possibly would not have been attained otherwise. And so from an infrastructural standpoint, I think Netflix is really impressive as well. You know, but then my friend earlier today sent me this link to this recent Fast Company article on, uh, you know, what they were saying are uh, the, uh, the world's most innovative companies from 2018. And uh, I looked at this list of 10 companies and I recognized like three of them. So the point being there is there's a lot of stuff going on out there mm-hmm. and there's a lot of really interesting work happening in corners of industry that are not necessarily companies that are household names. And uh, we got to remember that this is all still just getting started. To, to, to the first part, you know, I'm, I'm a very avid follower of uh, the, blog, the blogs from both Stitch Fix and, and Netflix. So really enjoy the, the technical content that they put out in regards yeah. to how, how they sort of open source, you know, some of their methodological framework on, on the problem that they have and how they approach that. And yeah, on your second part, you know, uh, I had a sense that, you know, people coming into this field kind of only know like a pretty limited amount of com- companies that are already house house names. And so, you know, you the, the point you bring about like, you know, um, there'll be more and more opportunities, especially for, for smaller companies at, uh, at various industries in different regions of the world is a good sign because it means, you know, you don't, you doesn't have to like, you know, get your first job at a like, you know, at, at the best company possible, you can just, you know, get what you learn and you, you apply and essentially, you know, smaller company, you know, yeah. those actually needed that, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, man, you know, straight up, Johnson & Johnson is the first company that I have worked for that I knew existed before I started interviewing with them. But I've done some great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the second question is that, what is one book? that you would recommend for people who want to, to develop a better analytical mindset? Like I said, you know, I don't really, I don't really think that that's something that is likely to be gotten from a book, even though there is a large industry of books out there focused on doing things like developing a more analytical mindset. Um, but that said, you know, I, mean, I, you know I, I really think the best thing to do is to Work on projects alongside experienced people where you have the room to screw things up and uh, learn from your mistakes and learn from people's guidance and understand, you know, sort of the principles that, uh, that guide that process. Um, you know, certainly, you know, everybody should have a, a good grounding in, uh, you know, sort of statistics and things like that. Uh, but I feel like that's separate, you know, that's just academic stuff. Uh, what I would say, you know, I guess uh, for lack of better answers, my uh, my uh, colleague and a member of my dissertation committee, Art Markman, has a series of, uh, you know, quite popular uh, popular press books on uh, taking cognitive science principles to uh, improve uh, the way that people uh, make decisions and, you know, uh, approach uh, work in the workplace. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I imagine that those would be of interest to a lot of people. 
Um, for people that are specifically interested in uh, reading something more about getting into a data science role, uh, my first recommendation uh, uh, by far, I think, uh, is a short O'Reilly ebook by a man named Jerry Overton called Going Pro in Data Science. Um, it is from a few years ago, so the technical details in the book, to the extent that there are technical details, are probably not what to focus on. But I think that he does a very good job of portraying the potential, uh, you know, sort of ways that data science can actually be incorporated into, uh, be, be incorporated productively into businesses, uh, you know, and, and not just in terms of being part of a machine learning team. Thanks for the recommendation. i uh, be sure to, to put that link to that book into the show notes. And um, last question of the day is that imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, so I've got a very specific answer to that. Um, and uh, it is a, uh, it would be a retweet of a blog post written by a woman named Vicky Boykus on my birthday of this year. Uh, February 14th. Um, it is not because it was my birthday. I do not think she even knows who I am. But uh, it is a blog post titled Data Science is Different Now. And it is uh, probably the best, most real, most level-headed piece of content about what real data science is that I've ever read. Um, and, you know, it's not all encouraging, honestly, you know, it has some, it really doesn't pull a lot of punches when it comes to talking about how difficult it is at this point to get into the field. Uh, the market is very oversaturated and there's a lot of, uh, you know, poorly shaped expectations about what's going to happen next. Uh, but yeah, for a, for a really real take on the state of, you know, trying to get into the field today, um, I think it's the best thing there is out there. And, uh, you know, I sometimes joke that the one feature that actually unifies all data scientists is that we all like to sit around and talk about what real data science actually is. Um, uh, as you know, uh, it's a lot of wasted breath for the most part, in my opinion. Um, but partially because there are a few pieces of content like this that uh, everybody really should read. Um, and so that would be that would be the tweet that I would send, uh, that I did send, uh, that I would send again. <laughs> great, great. Yeah, I include uh, I a link to that post as well. You know, it's, it's actually um, a pretty popular one that has been making the noise recently. And, uh, you know, a lot, lot yeah. of good, uh, lot of good nuggets um, yeah. that she, she pointed out. Yeah, for good reason. For good reason. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's it's required reading in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So so Nick, um, you know, um, over the past hours, you know, it was really an, an eye-opening conversation for me. You know, just talking about your experience, um, being grad school. You know, your different uh, industry work as well as you know some of your wisdom, uh, from from your writing and sharing your personal experience. So you know, yeah, thanks a lot for being a guest on my show, and I'm sure that a lot of people. Or listening to this episode, could uh, um, you know learn a lot from, from from that wisdom, and you know maybe even reach out to you if, if they have some any question. Okay, 
so yeah, Nick. Yeah, thanks sure. very much. Thank you so much. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.